I'm thinking uh, we might wing it. And uh, let's see, I have no notes, but uh, certainly some things uh, that I wanted to have brought up. Blunty mentioned he had a few topics he could talk about as well, so I'm sure we could could still have a meeting. Excellent. Blunty, would you start? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We talked a little bit. I mean, probably the first thing we could just officially talk about is the air map thing. I mean, you know, we posted that in the general channel, but AirMap has stopped providing land service. So, uh, you know, uh, they didn't seem, I don't know. I heard a couple of the places seem to comment like it was a big provider of lands. Are they like back end for anybody else? Or is that just confusion in, in people's understanding of AirMap? I think it might be confusion because I think by far Aloft is the uh, the largest provider and they are the developer uh, behind before you fly, so I, I right. think uh, John Hograins and Aloft have done a superb job, and they continue to be uh, free for recreational. Gotcha. That's kind of my understanding as well. Um, but yeah, I wasn't one hundred percent sure. So it does, like we said before, um, it does look like they are um, considering going into UTM or some kind of BVLOS management automation um, tracking sort of thing um so i guess we'll end up seeing where airmap ends up um another thing that's been kind of on the docket is uh or at least i've seen going around is the 118th congress is introducing the county ccp drones act again um the county ccp drones act is the fcc ban of dji so that would put it on the covered list for the fcc and people are worried because there's a line in there that would technically uh, stop the FCC from being able to review DJI products in the future for FCC approval, or at least that's the understanding that I've seen. So um, I doubt that it'll make it all the way through uh, with that in it, or at all maybe, but especially with that in it. But it is technically, I think, a possibility that like that's one route they could do instead of like import bans to stop DJI from being usable in the U.S. So. Yeah, and I was uh, reading up on this one as and as you uh, exactly as you said, um, this was this bill was released uh, by the same uh, congresswoman, Elsie Stefanik of uh, New York, uh, uh, and this it released into the 117th and just released into the 118th Congress um, a couple weeks ago, and so it is she, she has referred it over to the Energy and Commerce committee, which of course is the correct committee because she's trying to go after um, grounding effectively DJI through uh, the FCC uh, guidance, just as you said. So if we think, oh, we should uh, you know, send uh, letters and cards and letters to the aviation subcommittee, not on this one. Um, the, um, and it's important if you look at uh, GovTrack and what are the probability of this piece of legislation happening or not, it's still early days. This is going um, from a, a congressional representative to a committee. Now, uh, Lee Stefanik is the third most powerful representative in the House. So she is uh, she replaced uh, Liz Cheney. So uh, it is an important position. So we definitely should take this seriously. Um, but there is only one co-sponsor, and we'll see what... Uh, uh, how this progresses uh, in committee to see if it, one, ever gets to committee because it did not in the 117th, and uh, we'll see what happens. But, yeah, this one is uh, unnerving because it was stroke of a pen. It could uh, halt current and future uh, DJI operations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I guess we'll see as it goes on what GovTrack says about like where we're at with it and what we think will actually happen with it. I know they introduced this last year, but I think it was late in the session, if I'm not mistaken. So it wasn't yeah. necessarily, there wasn't necessarily yeah. time for it. Um, the only other thing I had was that I saw that the Australian FAA equivalent, which is the CASA, um, has, they were going to introduce a, a registration scheme for rec drones more than 250 grams um and that has stopped um and they've decided not to do that so i thought that was kind of interesting um they didn't really put out information on why or what the process is um, but it seems like at least currently they are pausing on forcing registration for those 
Yeah, I don't know if XJet's got any more inside information on why they decided not to go ahead with that, but I'm not sure I saw a whole lot of details on that either. Yeah. Yeah, that's about all I got. We have a couple things coming up uh, from the uh, the FAA. We have to get uh, jumping on uh, a BV Beyond. Excuse me, beyond visual line of sight um, rule, the FAA is looking for comments, and one of the topics in their comments list is shielded operations. So our thanks to uh, XJet for bringing that to our attention several years ago. We've brought it to the FAA's attention multiple times in uh, drone advisory committee work uh, back in 2021, as well as Dan and I brought it up and made it uh, prominent in the Beyond Visual Line of Sight Aviation Rulemaking Committee. So uh, it's a quick turnaround on um, on that one. Uh, we have until June 14, so we will post, uh, we'll put together an appropriate statement and get that uh, up, and, uh, up in public. Uh, the second uh, document up for comments is due on July 31st of this year. Uh, that is the uh, FAA's new policy for noise. Uh, this is important because if you think of uh, environmental protection work or you know, what do we uh, what are we worried about with respect to regulations of aircraft noise for crewed or manned aircraft is number one on the list and it appears that uh, it, it will be very high on the list for a small unmanned aircraft system as well so we have an opportunity to comment on those two documents uh, we'll be on it and uh, there's that. Uh, we are also um, escalating a number of situations where uh, we'd like uh, the FAA to be a little more responsive to to the uh, to the uh, at least the three uh, CBOs, uh, FTCA, uh, STEM plus C, and us FPBFC, and uh, we're working it up the uh, the management chain uh, in the FAA. Hopefully, we'll get some. Um, uh, some response uh, from that. Uh, we have uh, a good example of, a, of the challenges. Top of our list is the FRIA application process. Uh, lots of denials popping up. And it appears that if you have an application in and it gets denied, it, that there's no dialogue of, well, that's not what I meant. Or not, if I change this, can I get it approved? And so it's just denied, stamp. and it appears that we have to go and start the process over again. So we, uh, those of us who have submitted applications, we submitted them in uh, December, here it is May, so we're gonna start that clock again. So this is part of the, the process that we're escalating that we'd really like to understand, is there a service level agreement uh, that the FAA has on responding to FRIA applications? What's the process? We've asked for a rotation, we've asked for uh, access to the application programming interface and uh, and more. So that's ongoing. Uh, we're working on that. It's um, uh, it's frustrating. So it's not a happy story yet. Uh, and there are a number of uh, great situations or you know, great individuals who really need uh, free status, like uh, around schools uh, that the teachers are teaching kids in STEM programs. And wouldn't it be nice if they could fly outside? Uh, without uh, remote ID in a in a controlled environment in you know whatever uh, airspace is appropriate. Um, yeah, so I, I just shared a screenshot of the rejection letter I got from the FAA today about my second FRIA request, and this one was for my property, uh, and my justification for it was so that I could fly sub two fifty gram drones in my backyard to do reviews for them for YouTube or things like that. Uh, and they just flat out rejected it, basically saying that it's within a residential residential area and that without remote ID, it may negatively impact the safety and security of persons and property on the ground. So, you know, put that remote ID module on that 200 gram drone and it will be way safer. And no, I think we've, Dave's frozen. I think, 
Yeah, I think um, actually, and I think we've talked about this quite a few times at this point. But yeah, we're as far as we know, they are not approving any personal Frias. That's something they said uh, in that meeting we had uh, with them uh, a couple of months ago. That they will not approve a personal Fria. It has to be a group where pe- place where people congregate and is like a known flying spot for multiple people. Yeah, um, they pretty much reiterate that in my rejection letter. Um, because it's a private residential property yeah. and not a community flying site. I mean, <laughs> what yeah. if I had lots of friends over every week to fly in my backyard? Like, how is that not a community? Fl- like, what's their definition of a community flying site anyway? Basically, is this an AMA flying field already? Yes, then we'll approve it as a free. If not, sorry, it's not a community flying site. Pretty much. I mean, it's unfortunate because, yeah, I mean... The hope would be that there was some kind of actual review going on and consideration for like what's happening in each of these locations and stuff, but it does seem to be fairly blanket bans based on stuff. And it and as we assumed the FRIA process was broken and horrible, but it's clear that's the case now when we see denials and you have to go back through the entire process, likely get another person reviewing your application than the first person. Right. It's just like it's so convoluted. Yeah. And we've got no idea what order they're doing these in. I've gotten two rejections. One was one I submitted in December and one was one I uh, submitted in January. And Alex has some free requests that he submitted before mine and he has not received anything back yet. I believe one of those would be for Joshua Bardwell's uh, property. No idea why his has no. I would have one. I have one from December. No, no response yet. My assumption is that those are not outright guaranteed denials because maybe Bardwell's doesn't look as residential as other areas. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, so my guess is those are going into a a a, a pile. Further review and then they're required. waiting. Right, and then they have to wait on free a PEA, which we've talked about, because PEA has to go through, and then they have to do PEA on all those and get PEAs done for anything that actually needs to go through the next part of the process. And there's a ton of steps in here to catch like things they don't actually want, like those personal right. sites. So I expect on further review, we'll get a bunch more denied. But they're, they're making it past that initials thing, and they're just going to hang out for a long time, I assume, until they get to that. Right, and and it's that programmatic environmental assessment that really worries me because the FAA could say, oh well, you know, we've we've kicked off an environmental impact study for your uh, property there, uh, but we're denying your free status, and that would be the worst of all worlds. Yeah. And uh, Cheeto's asking if FTCA has received any denials. I don't think we've heard of any yet, have we? Or have you? Dave? I think yeah, they, they did. They have. Yeah, yeah they have. Yeah, and I'm chatting with them uh, tomorrow, so I'm uh, not at liberty to go into any detail without their okay. But yes, they have uh, received denials. Good. Well, then I'm not yeah. the only one. <laughs> I've got company. Yeah. That's right. <clears throat> it's not. It's nothing personal. <laughs> just. It's just. <laughs> the, it's just. Just business. Just to be clear, DFWFEV says any approvals. It's not possible currently for them to approve any FRIAs because the FRIA programmatic environmental assessment process has not gone through review, has not been completed, and then has not been applied to all these FRIA locations. And that PEA has to happen before they can approve any FRIAs. So whether or not they were ready to approve any, we don't even know that's the case. Maybe they aren't. But if they were, they would have to wait anyway for the PEA. So that's a good excuse, you know. Right. Yeah, what do we, and what do we, I think the the dates were that the PEA FRIA had to have com- comments had to be in as of May third, and then yeah. I'm pretty sure it was another sixty days for uh, open for litigation, thirty or I sixty. Think I think sixty. Yeah. yeah, I think when we looked at it, it would basically end like a month before FRIAs were required, essentially, right? right. It was like right, yeah, somewhere. Like August, I think, is where it's going to finalize. And then they'll literally have one month to get any freeze approved through the PEA, which, yeah, I mean, of course, this isn't on time. Of course, this isn't going to go how it expected. But do we expect any delays? No, because we haven't heard anything about a delay of this process because there aren't freeze available. So, Oh, and uh, Dave, right. I did get a response from Al today, which was basically what you expected. Uh, he's like, I don't I don't have any input on that. You got to talk to John. Right. <laughs> so. Pretty much yeah. what I think you predicted I, would happen. Yes. And, and That's, this you're is talk- a, 
You're talking about asking about the denied for you, right? Asking about yep. why it was denied. How do I appeal? How do I continue okay. the process? Because their website has no ability to, to do anything. It's just your application was denied. And okay, now what? <laughs> there was and no back and forth, no working with the CBO, no explanations, nothing. And this is an organizational challenge for the FAA in that they are uh, highly siloed and um, they they um, will individuals rarely take the initiative to uh, pick up uh, a citizen's uh, concern and get it to the right person within the FAA. You're on your own uh, to figure that out. And uh, that's an unfortunate way to run a uh, somewhat large organization. Uh, so that's that's one of the things on our list. And we're not alone in that one. There were uh, multiple uh, testimonies uh, to Congress of uh, what could be done to improve the uh, FAA uh, as part of the 2023 Reauthorization Act. And reorganizing the FAA was one of the things that came up again and again. And that was uh, broader than uh, than just the um, uh, UAS or Unmanned Aircraft System uh, Integration Office. Uh, Dark Crow says, so the FAA is making CBO apply for FRIAs without having a FIA approval system in place. I mean, sort yeah. of. I mean, that that is basically the case, yes. I mean, they're, yeah. they sort of were like, hey, this is something we're required to do. We're not really ready, but here's a page to submit a bunch of info, and then we'll figure it out. And then they're slowly in the back end trying to figure it out across multiple members of a scattered team without any oversight, and they're slowly building in these other pieces. The FRIA PEA was required. They just didn't submit it until X date, and now we're X date away from it because there's so many days for review and all these things that are required. You know, it's basically like scrambling to make this happen because they're legally, you know, they're they're bound to do this. I think. Well, is sort of I'm not at. sure that the FAA has any deadline to make any of this actually happen. Like, do they? Well, have they have a theoretical deadline, I think. Do they but have I don't to approve they... any freeze before September 15th? I don't think they do. I, there's. No I don't know that that's the date anymore. Right. No, they, no. They've told us that they have no service level ag agreement, although they did anticipate that each review could take up to four months. And they're basically and seeing the, they were, the free as is doing us a favor, if, if the way it came yes. across in that meeting. Right. I agree with that. Yeah, 100%. Right. That seems to be the case. Right. Yeah. And so the, um, uh, the document of um, 89 3 that discusses the uh, advisory circular 89-3 that discusses the FRIAs and advisory circular 9157 or 9157C, which discuss, discusses the CVOs document that uh, they don't have this. This isn't ready. They're, they've, you know, they've theoretically gone live, but it's not working. And that's the point that we've been on since December. Well, we will continue. And one of the things that's important um, in an uh, escalation in a large organization is the turnaround time to an escalation. And so when you're um, telling someone that something is broken, they need to respond to you. And so uh, that's part of the issue is that each, each dialogue, each question uh, can have, uh, we've had several go several months without a, any response. And we're pretty good about being professional and following up and, hey, I know you're busy, but you know, really could really, really would like an answer to this. So we know how to be a squeaky wheel and still be professional, but it, it's getting um, very frustrating. If it just feels like the FAA doesn't care about oiling the shopping carts. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I think that's the problem here, right? It's like we could be squeaky all day, but I'm not sure they're really concerned. It's just like right. we can we could ignore that. That's fine. Well, the shopping carts will make it around, and we're not going to get in trouble. I don't know. That's yeah. that's definitely in that analogy. Yeah, I, I feel like where the FAA think, is at, you know. I think air mobility is the yeah. That's the shiny new toy that's getting a lot of attention. That that uh, got seven people added to the um, Advanced Aviation Advisory Committee. And uh, I think that's where the focus is, and uh, that's unfortunate because uh, uh, they're ignoring uh, their largest cohort. Can't we just say we'll put artificial intelligence in our drones if they don't start talking to us, and then that'll get their attention? <laughs> Since that's the latest hot topic. 
Yeah. The yeah. chat GPT powered FPV drone. That sounds scary. <laughs> well, I've got a new yeah. processor, a new processor set. What a Terry's and that that's exciting. That and thank you to uh, Madstech for uh, mentioning that. I I didn't realize that was uh, that was happening. Artery, it's good to hear. Yeah, artery. Yeah, the, yeah, artery tech. The replacements for the STMs. Hopefully, they're almost a drop in. The pins are drop-in replacement, but there's still a little bit of work on the back end. But Betaflight will support it in 4.5, so that's pretty exciting. That is, yeah, that's cool. And to me, the, you know, the fact that they're both, um, what, uh, Adam, um, am I getting that right? The right, you know, the underlying cores are the same. So that's, you know, so that's very, very good from a perspective, uh, making sure that the firmware runs. So yeah, that's that's exciting yeah. and a lower lower price point uh, by a lot. Yeah, well, oh, it'll be interesting awesome. to see if if uh, other companies start adopting them. There's like one cheap Banggood or AliExpress flight controller that's like sort of a no name that has it, and then there's um, Beta uh, FPV, that... I think. No, I don't think they've adopted it yet. There's it's um hold on, I have it on my thing. Uh, Neutron RC, is ah, the company. Okay. Um, so I'm hoping to see some bigger uh, manufacturers hop on that train to get some cheaper processors for. For a while, though, I think we're going to run into the same problem we had before, which is that if people start shipping them before four or five ships of beta flight, we're going to have the mess again where people are running custom firmware that they have to find hexes for because it doesn't support the MCU or they're going to have to run AT beta flight, which is the fork of beta flight. Or, yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe manufacturers will actually wait for that instead of trying to release stuff ahead of time like they always do. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, uh, I, I've in enterprise systems. I've lived through uh, yeah uh, hardware changes, and you try to keep the uh, the applications uh, uh, sane and stable, and, and it's uh, it's not not an easy thing to pull off. Yep. So I, I I admire the Betaflight developers that they've committed to uh, four four point five to uh, support Artery. That's a that's a great thing. Yeah, my understanding is some. Like there was uh, basically one of the developers got paid to build AT beta flight on the side and then they ended up merging AT beta flight later. So that worked out pretty well. But that's the nice thing about open source. Agreed. Well, let's see, Dave, uh, do we have any any updates or progress on us becoming subject matter experts for the next uh, FAA ARC? Um, <laughs> the one that we refer to as the counter UAS ARC, but it's actually called something else. It's called the Detection and Mitigation Aviation Rulemaking Committee. Uh, we're definitely not uh, <laughs> a member on uh, on this. Uh, we have been requesting uh, that we that we be involved and as a member, like we were a member on the Beyond Visual Line of Sight arc. Uh, we have been asking since about October. Uh, we must have been asking the wrong people. Um, I spoke with one of the co-chairs, one of the um, uh, Abby Smith. And uh, her recommendation is that we just, uh, that no, doors closed, 58 uh, organizations are established, and that we should uh, work with uh, members that we know and offer to be subject matter experts to them. Uh, we've, we've done that. And in addition, AUVSI, one of the sponsoring companies uh, for this effort, um, is, has put together a uh, technical assistance group, and we are part of that. So it's very loose, and it's uh, effectively no communication uh, from the the larger body. So I'm not, uh, uh, and this this is important to me from a perspective of uh, the they are used. They have you know I on the in these conversations we've heard clueless, careless, and criminal use, and you know so there. Uh, this is to tr try to stop the. the uh, uh, use of drones uh, where they shouldn't be, and uh, we are uh, very concerned that uh, that there would there could and would be overreach uh, in the uh, detection and mitigation. And this is both uh, RF and uh, physical counter UAS measures that we're talking about. So but just to be clear, we will stay as close as we can. Just to be clear, so let's say we're not invited at all as SMEs. We have no input the entire time. The AMA, obviously, uh, we assume isn't going to actually do any work to fight for anything and just let everything go. So let's say a bunch of bad stuff happens in that arc. Does that go to an NPRM that, that we can then at least try to fight with comments? 
it's uh in addition it goes it's a public record and there is a, a very brief i think it's a 30-day period that we can comment on the arc uh report and so okay. the the arc will issue a uh, a, fi- a formal report to the faa and even though it's a joint faa and industry uh effort and then subsequent to that, you're exactly right. The the document goes to the rulemaking organization in the FAA. They are then responsible to create a uh, notice for public rulemaking, which we would have an opportunity to comment on. So and we will. Cheeto's asking, did we reach out to the AMA? So, Dave, have we talked to the AMA about their involvement on this arc and how we can possibly help? Not yet. But we, we've reached out to other companies that we've worked closely with on Beyond Visual Line of Sight Arc and other. We have. Act and and we've gotten things. positive. We've, got, we've gotten a positive response from those two. And uh, um, we are we're working with the AMA on a, a number of topics. And we'll bring this up uh, in our next conversation with them. Uh, you can tell from my voice that I don't anticipate. Um, uh, a lot of activity uh, resulting from that, but we we will ask. Yeah, we do talk to the AMA, right. but they don't share information very freely, it seems, at least not in our right. experience. Insert right. comment about corporate here. You know, <laughs> what I mean? that's where I'm... All right. Well. I think what else we got? Other yeah. questions Another. from the chat, from the people who've joined us? Anything random stuff, <laughs> regulation-related? Uh, anything you we want are us getting to rant close. about? We are, we are working on uh, with, working with the uh, flight test uh, company and uh, Tritium Electronics on the flight test broadcast module. It's coming along nicely, and it is uh, approved by the FAA with a declaration of compliance. And uh, working on uh, announcement documentation as well as uh, making sure that we have inventory on hand when we announce, so or shortly after announcement. So that's coming up. Sure, we'll have it uh, available before uh, September 15. Yeah. So Cheeto's asking how much it will uh, cost, and the, that that won't be announced till it's public. That's right. Yeah, we're uh, we're we're happy that it's. With the cost point, um, uh, we're very impressed with the Tritium Electronics Company. Uh, They've done a great job on both the hardware and software supporting it. Small, it's single board, and it's uh, double double sided. And the the antenna are integrated, so there are no external antennas. Uh, The antenna, plural, are uh, etched in the printed circuit board. Uh, GPS on one side and the uh, Bluetooth on the other. So the design is uh, is clever and it works really well. What else is uh, are we is cooking? Um, less than a month away from Flight Fest, which you will be uh, at just, with okay. Rob and Josh. And uh, on and Saturday, Alex. Alex as well. <clears throat> so, yes, that was... I've been uh, cutting up uh, conduit for gates and uh, cutting up uh, rebar for gate supports. So we are excited to uh, to be an FPV presence at Flight Fest. Uh, if you can go and if you're available to volunteer and you have skills that uh, uh, that are a bit technical with beta flight, uh, we could use your help. Uh, it is uh, an invigorating uh, event. There, uh, they have sold out the camping sites. Uh, last year was over 2,000 pilots. Uh, we expect the, uh, the similar numbers or more this year. Uh, it, is, it is just a, uh, a positive experience uh, for kids, for young adults, and for older adults. And uh, the uh, the objective is to try to get people into the air and having a good time. And so it is uh, has been traditionally mostly fixed wing RC made out of foam. So model airplanes made out of foam, flying RC, flying combat. And uh, we've added uh, FPV, uh, mostly quadcopters, uh, to the mix. And we add some gates, uh, some racing gates for just for fun uh, to try to keep it 
uh, casual, relaxed, and answer questions and fix and troubleshoot any problems that people have over the event. It is uh, 22 through 25 June this year. It's in Malvern, Ohio. And uh, if you're if you're able to uh, to volunteer uh, to help out, um, you know, there's a uh, uh, let me know. Contact me at dmessina at fpvfc.org, and I'll I'll get you in touch with uh, the right person with Eddie Black. X-Wing FPV is asking, how would I know if the remote ID tag was working properly if the battery is low and may die mid-flight? Well, I would assume part of that answer is that the remote ID system has to alert the operator somehow if there's a failure, whether that's through audio correct. or visual. It does not, it does, that's correct, and it does not have to be uh, a telemetry signal. And so um, we left it in the back as part of the ASTM working group, we left this somewhat vague intentionally. And so um, uh, a, a light would be sufficient to technically uh, alert the, uh, the operator that uh, things are not working. Um, in the flight test design, we've chosen to use both an LED because it could be buried in addition to a buzzer. Also, Good. if you interesting, also it's powered. Interesting question. It also it'll be powered by your drone. So if your drone loses battery, then it'll lose battery, right? Absolutely. And then your drone's yeah. no longer flying because it's falling right. or hitting the ground, so it doesn't need remote ID yeah, anymore. It's no longer right. a drone. Crashed, yeah. it is now, so low yeah, battery is now, not a concern. You've landed yeah. as soon as practicable. <laughs> right. Um, meat brings up a, a good point. Uh, that I'm sure flight. Uh, test is very worried about that next year, what are they going to do for Flight Fest, assuming that they don't get a FRIA approved for it? Um, and does everybody need remote ID modules? I know the FAA has told us they're working on something for events, but obviously that doesn't exist yet. So I'm sure they're very well, worried about that. They yeah, fly regularly at Edgewater, right? So they're working to file Edgewater as a location. Right, but Flight Fest they doesn't are. happen at Edgewater. It happens elsewhere it's, an, okay. it's a really important you know it's an, an important point that we've been talking about with uh, josh bixler and uh, lee cockner it's it is not an issue this year but it absolutely is because the faa it's a temporary event temporary location and the faa has said oh yeah we're working on it and then then they've you know backpedaled a little on that point and said well we're you know we don't really have anything in the works to support temporary events. And this, of course, was after Administrator Dixon you know, told in a multi-GP individual, we will take care of you for races, which they have not done. So uh, events need to be, we need to figure this out with the FAA. This is one of the things that we asked uh, to work on together uh, with them. And uh, so, yeah, this is, a, this is a really good question. Also, I'd, uh, a shout out to, uh, to meet. Meet is on our Discord uh, servers frequently, helping people out, uh, and I appreciate the, uh, the technical insight as well as the super positive uh, attitude that he has to support uh, the community. So thank you, Meet, uh, for the work you do. We really appreciate it. XJet's trying to ask a silly question about the GPS reacquisition time for flying in and out of bandos, but we could say that something <clears throat> like um, flight test module, we believe, has a very quick acquisition time of the satellites, if I remember right. It is does. That true? It does. It is true. And um, it'll, it'll have the legally required acquisition time, and also uh, the GPS is not required to actually be active anyway if you're flying indoors so there's like you know what i mean it's basically no but as like, soon as you fly you, out you the window it has <laughs> i don't know well how no it doesn't works, right because right no not technically it doesn't the way it's written ID, you could but... take off without right you could take you off without only remote id broadcasting without gps and then fly the whole flight outdoors and it would technically be compliant so yay vague rules <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. until they're used yep. against you Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, the but one that really makes me get. worried is the is the 15 foot vertical accuracy requirement on standard remote ID for the controller, not for the aircraft. And yeah. So of course that's so that um, DHS can find out what floor you are located in in a building. 
because we all fly inside from inside buildings. Uh, it's where we fly our drones, right? Tongue firmly inserted in cheek. So do, yeah. do, do all modern cell phones have that accuracy of GPS in them? Most do. It's okay. because it's a, a WBAS, yeah. That's I'm just why, thinking of something like the Avada yeah, with DJI. That's why the Avada uses a, a cell phone because it 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 does um, have that level of accurate, of vertical accuracy. So yep. I wonder how old of a cell phone does the Avada still work with, and does it know and refuse to function if you're using a cell phone that has a poor GPS that doesn't meet those those uh, requirements? Guess I haven't I tested bet, that. I, yeah, I bet not. But <clears throat> I'm guessing on the testing, you know, so would be interesting. That would be, yeah, we could we could figure that one out. Just find an old phone and uh, plug it in and see if it uh, acquires satellites. Yeah, it, they might get away with just saying that it requires a new enough operating system that only runs on phones that are fairly new with fairly new GPSs in them. But maybe not. Maybe mm -hmm. they're smarter than that. Yep. Good questions from uh, from around the electronic room. Any other questions? Okay. Um, uh, I have uh, as a as part of FPVFC put an order in for a uh, drone tag BS module as uh, we. Uh, uh, said that we, we will uh, do what we can to acquire broadcast modules and review them uh, as a team, uh, as a, a core team, and, and offer that. And we will continue to be very transparent that we have a special special relationship with Flight Test and are working on a uh, on a specific broadcast module. And hopefully that uh, that level of uh, transparency is uh, is okay with uh, uh, with the with the community. I'm just thinking of uh, Flight Fest next year. If there is no FRIA and there are hundreds of people flying with uh, remote ID enabled, like what would your app look like and how would you ever track down who's flying? <laughs> you could probably get uh, potentially crash the apps or find bugs in them to see how many, how many remote ID signals can they handle at once. Yeah, one of the things we're thinking about on the app is being able to uh, identify yourself and your friends. And so that's this is a this would be a challenge when you have uh, 150 to 200 aircraft yeah. in the air. And like Bruce points out, like how much 2.4 gigahertz uh, yeah, noise is that going to cause? Is that going to cause too much mm -hmm. interference with all the the radios that are going at the same time? Yeah, it, it could be a mess. Yeah. Upside is uh, milliwatt uh, level uh, transmission power. So th these are not high powered, noisy uh, transmitters. And very it's, brief uh, transmission. Yep. But it's you know, with with that many aircraft. I mean, they discovered this in the early uh, uh, use of 2.4 gigahertz uh, with the, uh, was it IRCA, the uh, helicopter um, event. When they got up to a couple hundred, they had serious uh, interference issues. It's pretty scary with big helicopters flying around. Yeah, yeah. Well, it could be quite the experiment uh, in 2024. Yeah. yeah. Um, X-Wing FPV is asking if you can change your FAA ID if someone is tracking you. I think that's the whole point is that they want people to be able to track you. Um, so mm -hmm. if you have a remote ID module, all the modules currently will have be broadcasting basically their serial number. And so every time you fly that remote ID, it'll always be the same serial number and that serial number you're supposed to register on the FAA's website so the FAA knows which serial number matches with who. Right. Yeah, there was there was a uh, provision for rotating numbers, but that only applies to standard remote ID where you can, uh, I can't remember the term, but you can basically have a new number each time you fly, session ID, uh, but you can ID. only have that. Right. Yeah, each time you fly, but that's only for standard. That wasn't added into the verbiage for uh, our remote ID, broadcast module remote ID. And it appears that there's no no one has done anything with that. So it's I, I completely agree with Blunty. This is possible per the standard, but we're not aware of anyone exploiting this. 
that capability. So just as Dan said, it appears that everyone we're, we are aware of is using the serial number uh, as the identifier. And then if someone wants to find out who you are, uh, they have to uh, uh, contact the FAA and they have to be law enforcement to get an answer. <clears throat> Good question. Anything else? Anything else coming up, Dan? Um, uh, real quick, SEG says you can design your own module, so that's not accurate because the module has to be approved by the FAA. So you would have to still go through approval with the FAA. Just, just to be clear, you can't just like build a module open source and then pop it on and it'd be legal. Correct. And the um, we went to a lot of pains in with the flight test module to make sure that we were compliant with the spirit much you know much more than just the letter of the uh of the regulation and so it, this you know you, you need to take a look at the the two astm standards 3411 and 3586 and these are hundreds and hundreds of pages of uh, regulations or rather specifications excuse me as well as the remote id um, rule uh, so this is this is a non-trivial uh, development effort, and then you have to go through bench testing and um, field testing as well. Um, yeah, you can obviously create your own module. So, so I just want to be clear: you could absolutely create your own module, but it'd be cost prohibitive and annoying as hell for most people to do. And you doing it on your own would only open you to litigation by the FAA because you have lied directly to the FAA in a federal doc dec declaration of compliance. Because now you could tamper with your own module. I just want to be clear: like, there's some there's some stream in chat here that's confused. I think. Because like you can't just make your own module that's totally incompliant, get it approved by DOC because they don't care, and then just fly with it however you want. That's going to bite you in the ass. I can almost guarantee you that. And I think we're going to see that at some point in maybe two, four, six, eight years. But we may, I think we'll eventually see that on DOCs that are invalid when people find out that they're invalid. And then they start clamping down on this information. Because at some point, somebody's going to care about remote ID probably. And when somebody cares about remote ID, then stuff's going to get clamped down. And when stuff gets clamped down, the people who are violating are going to get in trouble, probably. I mean, I can't say for sure, but I'm just saying I don't and think yeah, that's and the when, way to go. And when, when folks are going to get really interested in uh, remote ID is when uh, unmanned traffic management becomes a thing, and that's uh, all about air mobility. So that's spinning up right now in the United States, and it'll, it'll happen elsewhere uh, in the world first. Um, but that's uh, you know, a market need or perceived market need that's going to drive uh, remote ID uh, enforcement, uh, in my humble opinion. So Ed over on YouTube asked, <coughs> talking about remote ID modules and that he would like to have one that's self-contained, can be moved from one aircraft to another, and just needs a battery plug like an AIO camera would have. And pretty sure that that's pretty close to what the flight test one is doing. Um, you may have to... Uh, solder on your own like connector so that it works with the battery types that you want or connector types that you want but it would be possible to have almost any kind of uh, a power source and battery connector and then you can move that between your your aircraft right yeah also, right, also, on, right also, on the money also remember when you're registering uh, my understanding is how this process will work is when you're registering a home-built UAS, so a, a, build, a UAS that you built on the FAA website, you're going to list your drones and the serial numbers for them, right? But the serial number for your drone, the way it works now, is you enter the serial number or the remote ID module. The rest of our information is home-built and generic for each drone. So my understanding and my impression is that you can just file one drone, home-built UAS, uh, home built for everything else, and then the serial of the remote, remote ID module, and that technically makes all the drones legal under that one module without having to go edit the FAA website every single time you move that module to another drone. And am I remembering this right? If you're doing a Part 107 flight, every you have to register every drone, and you have to have a separate module for every drone. If yes, you're, 107. Yeah, yeah yes. doing yeah. it that way. Yeah, and, and I, I subscribe to what Bundy described for recreational. Sign it up once, pass it around because it's the module that's being, and the, the module I, serial is matched to your personal FAA registration. So you as a recreational 44809 operator. So the FAA is getting what they want from their registration. 
and we're getting what we want, the ability to move that module from aircraft to aircraft. And yeah. as Dan says, only for recreational. Yeah. And, Part and 107 has to be a one-to-one. And Meet's asking, saying that he didn't think broadcast modules were available for Part 107. But it's one of those weird cases where you, if you have a drone built before, manufactured before um, that deadline, whatever that was last year, um, then you have to have September a module 16, on it 20, to fly it. Uh, right. But you can't manufacture a new one that uses a module anymore. It's just uh, right. to grandfather in old stuff so you can fly it again. It has to have a module or firmware that creates remote ID. Right. Yeah. Very, yeah. Very important point. And so if you have, uh, you, you have, you build an, uh, a, a commercial uh, intended part 107 drone today, and you want to put a broadcast module on it, that's, you know, technically that's not enough. That's supposed to have standard remote ID. So it has to have the um, uh, the location of the ground control station or the transmitter uh, uh, noted dynamically or measured dynamically uh, once a second. And that has to be part of the message element that is transmitted by the aircraft. And there has to be, on, if the, on post or power up, uh, if the, Broadcast. If the RID subsystem is not functioning, it has to prevent the aircraft from taking off. Those are the two larger differences between standard remote ID and a broadcast module. Yeah, and then there's also lots of other silly requirements, manufacturing requirements about the FAA inspecting your manufacturing plant and all that other stuff. Right. Subpart Subpart 21. I think the thing that most people should take into account and obviously each person needs to make their own decisions based on this but um i expect that you're going to be in the bracket of we don't care or we're going to be very nice to you for a long time if you're flying a commercial drone with a broadcast module and still broadcasting remote id of some sort i i highly doubt that you will immediately receive a fine or penalty for doing a broadcast module on a commercial drone i think worst case you'll get a hey we don't think this is okay you should not do this anymore. Please cease operations. Uh, I can't guarantee you that. Each person needs to make their own decision. But I I really doubt that you're going to get slapped down on for running some kind of remote ID and attempting to meet requirements with your home-built drone. That's what I would say. Yep. I think that's a very sensible approach. I, I agree with you plenty. So, yeah. And Ed, we don't know what the FAA response is going to be, but that, that's a you are attempting to comply. Ed's asking a question yes. over on YouTube. Uh, how come manufacturers like Hobby Zone, Horizon Hobby, whomever, for example, is not providing remote ID in their aircraft kits like RTF when it is sold? I thought all manufacturers had to comply before they sell. So these are different understandings of what that means. So that people are taking different interpretations of the rule, or I believe a few are just not caring. But most of the companies, I believe, are saying, like, if we don't sell you a battery with your drone, or with your plane, but that means you can't fly it. So that means it's not a complete kit. So we don't need to sell your standard remote ID. And that's that's sort of where, you know, I think Rotor Riot took the term of, Rotor Riot is saying in a blurb at the bottom that everything is for personal use, indoor use only, something like that, right? Where they're considering that you cannot use this outdoors in a space where you need remote ID, and we're gonna sell it to you like that. And that's gonna hopefully, you know, forgo them of the issues. So right now, as far as we know, none of these stores have been talked to or discussed, you know, from the FAA about this. So I assume everybody's just going to keep writing it out and making their own decisions about it until we start to see letters cease and desist, if that happens, right, to these different places. Um, yeah. And that's where we'll see actual changes, I think. And someone like Horizon Hobby could probably go a couple of years and say that these these aircraft were manufactured in 2022. Uh, and as long as it's like a model they had back then, uh, they may have built a whole bunch of them and they take a couple of years to sell their inventory. Yeah, the, I believe the term is complete kit in the rules. That may be wrong, but I think that the way the term works is complete kit. Yeah, and it kit. changed a bit between the NPRM and the final rule. The final rule was more vague. Yeah, yeah happily, yes. because the NPRM had a percentage of uh, of kit from a, a manufacturer, which was, that was, you know, there was no definition of what, how, how do you calculate a percentage? Is it cost? Is it 
is it weight? I mean, it was it was bad. So happily, they got rid of that. Yeah, but so like if they are truly trying to sell it mm-hmm. ready to fly, like that that wouldn't that would have to have standard remote ID if it was manufactured after September fifteenth, twenty twenty two. Right. Great questions. Anything else popping up, Dan? Uh, Mupshot asks about ExpressLRS broadcast the GPS location, but has no broadcast of its launch. I'm hoping that future firmware might broadcast over Wi-Fi, making it resemble what RID could be. Yeah, the issue is still that they're going to need a declaration of compliance for any hardware. So if you want to be technically legal uh, with that hardware, you would have to get individual hardware DOC'd and then purchase that hardware from a vendor um, that's got that approved DOC. And is ELRS uh, open source? It is, yes. Yes, you would need some closed source blob, right? To, to not you be got it. Or... You got it. And so there, it's a, another vague term that we sweated with the FAA because coders don't like it, uh, and I support their their frustration. Um, but there's tamper resistance. It was the uh, the desire, and the the view is that if it's all open source, that that's not sufficient. So just dropping this technical capability uh, into uh, an open source um, uh, code uh, batch is the view is that that's absolutely not going to uh, fly. If you'll forgive the pun, uh, just as uh, as Blunty was pointing out, there are a number of flight controllers that have areas either uh, in, that are separate processors that um, are designed to run uh, closed uh, source, and uh, that that would be a good way. Uh, to have that happen on a flight controller, but uh, overall, you know, with a, uh, open source, you know, end to end, it's probably not gonna not gonna work as a as an approval uh, to get a declaration of compliance. Right. Yeah, and we we've been we've been through this, and we'll probably have further discussions on this point. There there are good ways to. Uh, to execute standard remote ID with an open source flight controller or an open source command and control um, uh, protocol like uh, ELRS. So it's it's just a matter of you know where do you want to, where do you want this function to uh, emit from and where do you want to run it and and what what's a sensible approach to um, uh, making it tamper resistant, uh, and then keep and then keeping it synchronized with the rest of right, the rest of the code. That's always when you have multiple uh, diverse functions. That's always a, a software configuration management challenge. XJet says tamper resistant simply means a sticker to be attached that says "Do not tamper." Um, that's funny. Uh, when we I did cannabis for people who don't know, I did. I have a history in cannabis and. Uh, we literally, I mean, it was crazy. They spent millions of dollars getting bags approved that were actually tamper resistant enough to be okay. And eventually the test ended up being, I think it was another ASTM group. They would put a child in a room who was six years old. They would pick randomly select children who were six years old. They would sit them on the at a table with a bag in front of them, and they would try to get them to open it. And there was a piece of candy inside for 10 minutes. And if they couldn't open it in 10 minutes, then it was considered tamper resistant. If like a certain percentage of them couldn't get it open. So I love it. I love it. Just for some perspective. Yeah. We took this, as I said, the, there were coders as well as hardware uh, developers in the ASTM group. And we spent hours and hours and hours on this topic. And we knew we could be very precise on the language. Uh, there are industry accepted terms here, but that would have driven the cost very, much higher, and it would have um, increased the weight, uh, which I was freaking out about because they're like, "Great, we'll just fill these things with resin, and we'll be uh, closed source, and you know, we'll be all set." And I'm like, "No, we're not, you know, these things can't be, you know, multiple ounces." So uh, I'm happy where we landed. Yes, it's vague. Uh, the result is that we'll have broadcast modules that are fractions of an ounce. 
Um, Dak asked for any updates on one kilogram. We won't see those probably for a few months, I expect. Uh, whenever we see the um, FAA Reauthorization Act get pushed through, we'll find out basically what ends up in there. Is sort of where we're at uh, yeah. with that process, unfortunately. I'd love to have some sort of more info, but that's not really the way the process works when you submit these sort of things. You don't get communication back and forth most of the time. So, um, yeah, we're sort of a wait and see and hope they uh, took all the uh, calls and information and everything to heart. And hopefully, uh, yeah, right. we'll get support from other groups like the AMA at some point when they do feel like it's time to do one of those letter writing campaigns. Um, what, we're, what we're watching for is the, the issuance of the uh, FAA Reauthorization Act of 2023. And so when that bill hits the streets, then we'll, you know, that will, you know, that's a public, you know, and that'll be, that'll be on the uh, federal register that will be available to us, uh, to read. And, you know, then, you know, it's, it's then the 11th hour because, um, right. And you're talking about when it's, it's public, of, but before it's voted on, right? Exactly right. And in as much as this is a bark by Carmel and uh, bipartisan bill, we'll see two bills, one from the Senate and one from the House, uh, and then they have to go to conference. So there will be some amount of time uh, that this is supposed to be uh, resolved. Uh, we recall that the chair of the House uh, Aviation Subcommittee, his desire was to have the House bill voted and approved in June given the uh, gymnastics that we're having with, that we're observing with the uh, debt ceiling, uh, uh, I think that might be optimistic. How's that for <laughs> euphemisms? Um, Mupshot says, I understand the tamper resistance that my idea, my concern is that if LEO leaves me alone, if I have my registration and broadcasting my GPS position, I'd like to comply with the spirit of the law, but I know it's the letter that matters. So, like, let's say, for instance, you built your own remote ID broadcast just because you want it to look compliant and you broadcast whatever serial. So law enforcement doesn't have the ability to look up on the spot your serial information. But let's say you were approached by law enforcement, they took your information and serial and then did a lookup with the FAA and it wasn't valid. That's where I think you would then run into an issue, I would assume. So I think it's probably better in that case to not broadcast than just to broadcast a fake serial and attempt to look valid. But I mean, that's going to be on each person's decision. I, I would expect that it's better not to try to spoof information um, because it does get correlated to a database on the back end at some point. Yeah, yeah, and then you're 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 trying to portray yourself as a manufacturer in that case, and that that's not something we would ever recommend. Right. Yeah, the the, the notion of I put a good broadcast module on my uh, older. Uh, Part 107 device that you know you're trying to do you're trying to do the right thing, and that that's the, that's where we're headed as well. I totally understand the idea of like, hey, let me broadcast my GPS location so people can know where my drone is, and that feels more compliant than not doing it. But unfortunately, part of that is the RID elements is the serial number. And so if you're broadcasting a serial number that's not registered somewhere, then that becomes invalid. Here's the question, right. Dave. I've never thought about this. What if you made up a serial? Where do the serial numbers get referenced at? I don't actually know There's this answer. Specific if you form. go, they have to be they have to be compliant with ANSI sixty three thirty one. So let's so say they, uh, you made up the, something that was close, and then you went and the, typed it in to the FAA website. Does that then get logged into their database anyway, and then would it be lookupable, or is it back through the manufacturer where the number gets into their database? Part of the declaration of compliance is the serial number ranges in the first four. Okay. Uh, digits of your serial number relate to you as a manufacturer. But you could okay, certainly great. pick so, yeah, a they're... serial number that matches some existing one or pick one that you know, was the very first DJI, or last of the yeah, range or something. D, yeah, in the middle of a DJI Avada. Yeah, you could, do, you could do that. Not something we recommend. Yeah, mm. just, just, just pontificating. So. Mm-hmm. Yep. Good. Good question. Yeah. Or just just fly a drone that looks like it's two hundred forty nine grams when it's out flying. Yes. <laughs> Very light. Also Very light. Very thin carbon. Or you know, right. you bring well, that scale with you that everything weighs two hundred forty nine grams when you put it on it. And <laughs> <laughs> I got my thumb on the on the scale. Very little battery. 
Very small. And I, I shouldn't right. say weight. I should say mass because yeah, mass. If it weighs, uh, <laughs> because it's got helium, its weight could be less than a, a pound, you know a gram technically. Right. All right. Well, it's nine oh three. I think we did pretty good. Got a bunch I of think questions. So. We ranted I, yeah. on remote ID for long enough. I'd say. Yeah, I really appreciate the uh, the questions, everyone. Thank you. I did hear from Josh. He he did he uh, he forgot about us. You know, he apologizes, and uh, and so we hope to have Josh back in uh, in two weeks. And thank you, everyone, yeah. for uh, for attending. And the questions were great, and we really appreciate those because it gives us a sense of where's you know where's the tension, where's the frustration. Hundred percent. Anything else, gentlemen? Nope, sounds good. Hope to it. see you guys all back in two weeks. Absolutely. Right. Thank you both. Later, Take care, gentlemen.